0: Now it's time for Inspirational Women and my guest, Mary Otto. Mary is the oral health topic leader of the Association of Healthcare Journalists. She has used her talents to bring us an important book, Teeth, the Story of Beauty, Inequality, and the Struggle for Oral Health in America. We might have a partial idea of the importance of our mouth in our overall health, but if we don't, it's really not a surprise. Now we have this invaluable overview of the history of dentistry, stories from the trenches, the people who died needlessly due to lack of dental care. It's shameful, and this should not happen today in our society. Let's meet Mary Otto and get more of the story. Mary Otto, good morning, and thank you so greatly for being with us this morning.
1: I'm so grateful to be here.
0: Well, and more important, if that's possible, than being together is the fact that you have done this research and written this incredible book, Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. You know, you really underscore such a critical part of our lives of our own personal health. And so often it's just lost somewhere in some corner. And I just so appreciate that you have really invested so much time in telling the stories and really doing the research so that we can get a greater understanding of what's gone on in our history.
1: Well, thanks so much for the kind words and for reading the book. It is. Dental care is something that's kind of left out of so many important conversations about health care, and yet we all know that oral health is part of overall health, you know, on some level or another, but, you know, it's not always front and center, I think, in people's minds. And Dr. David Satcher, who was a surgeon general back in 2000, who issued the nation's first big official look at oral health called Oral Health in America, really made this point, you know, and it raised a certain amount of tension. It was kind of seen as a clarion call, you know, to do more. We needed to do more to appreciate oral health and expand the oral health care system to reach, you know, so many Americans who are kind of unable to reach it the way it is now as sort of a separate piece of the health care system. And the work goes on, though. I mean, these systems have been separate for Not an accident we think about dental care separately because our systems to take care of our oral health are separate from the system we have for medical care and the health care system, and it goes back a long way. And
0: yet, you know, thinking of the systems being separate, so I'm seeing, you know, I go to my dental office, I go to my doctor's office. Are you talking about that kind of system, or is it more than that, Mary?
1: uh, that's the part we see most regularly as consumers of, you know, oral health services if we are lucky enough to get to a dentist's office. But you're right. I mean, you know, you think about how important your teeth are to you. And and, um, if you have a toothache, for instance, that's a a very clear reminder that your teeth are part of your body. But, you know, hopefully it doesn't get that bad. But over a million Americans a year go to emergency rooms for toothaches and other non-traumatic dental problems because they're in pain. They want some help and they go to an emergency room. But an emergency room seldom provides the kind of care they need. There are very few dentists working in emergency rooms. They, they're working in private practice, you know, offices. So the patients get sent away with a prescription for a pain medicine and an antibiotic and they're told to go see their dentist but over a third of Americans face significant barriers getting to see a dentist a lot of these patients don't have a dentist so this situation costs the healthcare system over a billion dollars a year and the patients seldom get the care they need in these emergency room settings it's one of those strange it's it's a sort of a trick of history you asked about Is it as simple as a dental office being separate from a medical office? I can tell you a story from history that helps explain how these two things got to be separate. And I found it in my research. Since I'm based in Washington, it turns out the story didn't even turn out to have unfolded a long way away. It happened in Baltimore back in 1840 and that's when dentistry became a profession in america back in 1840 in baltimore and the first dental college in the world opened there that year and as this story is told the founders of the school uh horace hayden and chapin harris who were two they were two early dentists they were very sincere about their work they were more or less self-trained you know back in those days dentistry was considered kind of a kind of a trade you know you You learn it from somebody else who knew how to do it or thought they knew how to do it, like you know, and then you'd go off and do it yourself and anybody who considered himself or herself a dentist was one. You know, blacksmiths sometimes did it on the side. You know, Paul Revere, the famous patriot, made dentures as well as he did he he made jewelry and silverware and stuff like that. So anyway, these two men, Horace Hayden and Chapin Harris, really thought that dentistry deserved to be considered more of a profession than just a trade. And they came up with this idea of teaching, you know, a formal course of dentistry and having a professional society and a scientific journal. So they went to the physicians at the College of Medicine at the University of Maryland with this idea. They proposed adding dental instruction to the medical course at the the college. And the physicians, as the story goes, rejected the idea. They said the subject of dentistry was of little consequence. And that event has gone down in dental history as the historic rebuff. And, you know, it's still remembered as kind of a symbolic event, you know, but it's had real consequences. And it's continued to define the relationship between dentistry and the rest of the healthcare system and the way dentists work. They still, you know, focus on drilling and filling teeth and physicians still tend to look at the body from the tonsil's south <laughs> and you know medicine and dental research have, have both evolved a little, since 1840 but you know oral and systemic disease and health are still kind of looked at as separate things and although we know they're connected we still have a long way to go to understand how, how their, their relationships you know and how to keep ourselves healthier orally and in terms of our overall health, you know. So this gap has had real consequences for us.
0: Well, this is a great story to illustrate so much of what the problem is that exists in our society. So thank you for putting that forward, Mary. And I think then a couple of things come forward. One is the whole issue with the going to the emergency at the hospital. People do that because there they're not going to get turned away when finances are an issue, which we know is a huge issue for so many people.
1: Mm -hmm. That's right. Over 100 million Americans are considered dentally uninsured, and they're all ages and you know, all races. I mean, Medicare, which covers over 50 million of us who are lucky enough to get to the age where we <laughs> retire, and you know, has never included routine dental benefits. And you know, if you have the money, you might be able to go out and purchase them. But but a lot of them, you know, people who are retired live on fixed incomes, and it's a real stretch for them to buy dental insurance or pay for care out of pocket. Then there are over 70 million Americans who are covered by Medicaid, which is our, you know, federal state program to cover poor people and individuals and families. You know, almost half of them are children, and children are entitled to dental benefits under Medicaid, although fewer than half get them. And adults are not entitled to dental benefits under Medicaid. Poor adults in some states, get dental benefits. Others, if you live in a state that doesn't cover dental benefits for adults, you don't get them. So a lot of poor adults are left out too. And without some kind of coverage, you really are at a disadvantage to get care, to get access to the mostly private practice system that provides dental care in in America. And, you know, there are other complications when you're poor as well. You know, having transportation to get to an office or being able to take off work to get an appointment for yourself or your child. These are significant issues for a lot of people in a lot of communities. There are over 49 million Americans living in federally designated areas that are called dental professional shortage areas. They're places where there just aren't enough dentists to provide care. They could be rural places, you know, in many rural communities. There's a shortage of dental care. Some poor urban communities, there are just not enough providers to serve the people who need care. So yes, there are significant barriers people face. In many cases, they're more difficult to bridge than, than it is to get a, like a routine immunization for your child. This is a deep divide, and it's really hard for people to get over it sometimes.
0: Well, one of the things that happens, and you share the stories in this book, Teeth, is that going to an emergency room... Yes, there are not dentists there. So it's such a very general diagnosis that is given, along with prescriptions, which, depending on a person's ability to uh, have insurance to cover that, and likely they don't, then they're at a disadvantage. And there's a nightmare story of a young man who had that happen to him. It killed
1: him. Oh, yeah. This was in my, in my travels. I, oh, there are a couple of stories there's a story of Kyle Willis in, in Ohio. Uh, he was a young man. He was a young father and a fast food worker. And he went to a community hospital with an infected wisdom tooth. This was back in 2011. And he was given, like a lot of patients, prescriptions for a pain medicine and an antibiotic. But his family found out later He, they didn't know he was in such trouble at the time. He only had enough money to fill one of the prescriptions, so he chose the painkiller, and he was in a lot of pain. And the infection got worse. And a week later, he was rushed back to the hospital, this time in an ambulance, and it turned out the infection had, had escalated into a life, you know a systemic crisis. And he suffered a hemorrhage in the lining of his brain, and went into convulsions, as he was being transported to a big hospital in Cincinnati, he went to a, into a coma and died. And the cause of death was a cerebral edema, and it was due to the dental abscess. And deaths from dental abscesses are thankfully very, they're a lot rarer than they were in the days of, you know, before antibiotics were discovered. But people like Kyle Willis still die. And during three recession years uh, during the recent recession, researchers found over 100 people died in emergency rooms of dental infections. and It's
0: beyond tragic to think of all the knowledge and information we have, and the ability to take care of this and to have people die needlessly for something as simple as what goes on in our mouth. And to have the overall medical profession not really embrace this to see and really make a difference with that connection.
1: Yeah, it, systems are so complicated. You know, there's so many factors, and of course, you know, we just we've been witnessing this huge debate over the healthcare system. You know, it's ongoing, and you can sort of see how so many important issues the patients can come forward and say, oh, you know, if you remove this essential health benefit, I won't get care anymore, you know, or, you know, these important things that people's lives depend on are brought up, but in the midst of the passion and politics that uh, unfold in these debates, you can see how important things get left out of the sidelines too, and dental care really has been one of those things over the years. Uh, And organized dentistry has in some ways pushed back against efforts by Congress, and lawmakers, policymakers to reshape the private practice system. There's a fierce you know, fidelity in organized dentistry to dentist authority and their control over the marketplace for their services, you know, the private practice system. So there's some formidable forces that have shaped the system we have today. But the changes are are happening too, so it's kind of an interesting time to watch all
0: this. Well, one of the changes I think that we may find in our communities, I know that we have here in Western Washington, are some community dental clinics where dentists, because we have sadly such a growing population of homeless people, there are dentists who devote a day a month And it can add up when you have multiple dentists doing this to help these people who obviously don't have any kind of insurance and will definitely be falling into health care issues because of their teeth.
1: Volunteerism is really important, and it has kind of emerged as as one of the answers to, to the problem, you know, of uninsured patients and, you know, like you say, having no place to turn for care, you know. And it's very heartening, and the, many of the volunteers I've met in my travels, you know, at, at these clinics are just—they're just wonderful people. They're so compassionate and devoted to, you know, to relieving pain and, and restoring people to health. And I've heard beautiful stories about patients, people who have been struggling with homelessness and and poverty, you know, finally getting dental care and being able to smile again. And pick themselves up. I mean, having a being able to smile is so important to anyone, of course. And those of us who have access to care maybe take it for granted a little bit, but the American Dental Association had a survey done a couple of years ago by Harris Poll, I believe, and it found that a third of low-income Americans are reluctant to smile. You know, there's a lot of shame uh, people feel You know, when they know that they have missing teeth or you know bad teeth, and that can really hold you back, you know, from socially and also, you know, economically. People are at a disadvantage when they're looking for a job and they're afraid to smile. They, they might not be the choice, you know, of, of an employer who's looking for someone to work at the, you know, in the shop or the restaurant or, you know, in any of these what they call customer-facing positions that, that are the, sometimes the way to get into work and the service economies. So yeah, you know, in addition to the pain and suffering, there's there's some real economic reasons why people need dental care.
0: Yes, it's so easy to overlook that. As I read that, Mary, I was thinking it's subconscious in our reaction to people who we see perhaps with uh, poor teeth, whether I'm embarrassed for myself, you know, I don't want to stare, or is it that some people look and say, oh my gosh, you know, and, and make a judgment and won't hire them so that they can have income so that they can go down that path and, and get the health care that they need, right?
1: That's right, exactly, and break that cycle. Yes. You know, you're right, you touched on a really important point, and that is whether we mean to or not, there's a sort of moral lens that tends to take over, you know, and when you look at oral health, there's this kind of impulse that, oh, this person can't take care of himself, or she's irresponsible somehow. But, you know, on the other hand, you're, you might be judging someone who's really never had access to basic care, you know, throughout their life. So, yeah.
0: Yes. We need to step back. Look inside, be compassionate before we rushed to those kinds of judgments and be grateful if we have that dental insurance, which I have and I am truly (laughs) grateful. But that is another great story. There are so many important stories that you really have researched for us, Mary, in this book, Teeth. And it is that history of health insurance and what happened uh, back in the 1950s. It's just mind-boggling.
1: Oh, this was, yeah, the story of Max Shane. That was a fascinating story to find out about. Yeah, Max Shane was a young dentist. He was a dentist served in World War II in the Pacific. Peace was declared. He comes back to California, and he's like, We're still living in Jim Crow America in some ways. Dental offices and medical clinics have private, separate waiting rooms for black and white patients, and, you know, there's a lot of stress and strain about racial inequality going on. And Max Shane was a – he looked at the big picture. He was very upset about the racial inequality he saw, not just in healthcare but in the country as a whole. And he was a kind of outspoken man and he attracted the attention of the House Un-American Activities Committee. There was a congressional delegation that was focused on exposing the Communist Party activities in Los Angeles in the motion picture industry, and here was Dr. Shane working in Los Angeles, and he was asked about rumored work that he did with this group. It was the Hollywood chapter of a group called the Civil Rights Congress, which was working to represent minority defendants in court and labor unions and, and groups like that. And Dr. Shane went before the committee, and they gave him a pretty hard time, but he was let go to go back to his work. And he focused not just on oral health equity in his community but but across the country. And this was a day when health care benefits were just beginning to be used as a as sort of a incentive to get workers and keep workers, you know, the medical benefits were a very new thing, and in some ways they were considered somewhat revolutionary. But dental benefits hadn't really become part of the packages yet. And the Longshoremen, the International Longshoremen's and Warehousemen's Union in the uh, Los Angeles area contacted Dr. Shane and told them they were interested in getting dental benefits for their children. And he went to work on this project and created a dental benefit for them, for the longshoremen. And he created a salaried, integrated group practice to provide care to these children at a fixed rate that the union would pay each month. And didn't matter what kind of care the children needed, you know, these dentists and hygienists and the rest of Dr. Shane's staff would provide the care. And the goal was that over the years, the children would only need basic preventive care, but it was a fascinating new model, you know, for getting care to people. And it sort of stressed prevention over treatment because, you know, the goal is to get people to health so that they don't need so many expensive procedures over time. Well, the organized dental group in the area was just very upset about this. It, Dr. Shane's ideas seemed like a threat to the private practice fee-for-service system, you know, that they were invested in. And local organized dental groups really made life hard for him, but Dr. Shane went on with his work and he's now remembered as the father of dental insurance. And dental benefits don't always cover everything, but research has shown that people with dental benefits are far more likely to get care than Without them, and that their children are far more likely to get into care. So, in some ways, they've really served as a democratizing force for expanding access to dental care over the years, and Dr. Shane was a pioneer.
0: It is really an important and an amazing story. And I think we can feel the relevance on so many levels of what happened then uh, to what we are experiencing ourselves these days. So the book, Teeth. The story of beauty and equality and the struggle for oral health in America, it's filled with these important historical events that we don't necessarily come across or understand otherwise. And although we don't have really the time to go into it much, the first part of it, the story of beauty, focusing on Some of the cosmetic dentistry that goes on and uh, what I'm going to call astronomical costs that people invest in that versus just the basics of what we need in terms of just good oral hygiene, oral health, so that we can have overall good health.
1: Yeah, you're right. There is sort of a split within the system itself, you know, between obsession or fascination with having the perfect white Mile and the need for just basic routine care. So that
0: in itself is truly a story that I think we need to spend some time delving into and, and maybe get a better understanding on what is it that we are doing and what do we want, not taking away from anyone's uh, employment and, and desire to do their own kind of uh, work, but still where to rest our priorities and what's important and valuable in our life, right?
1: I mean, you're right. Cosmetic dentistry is a big part of what people sometimes think of when they think of getting dental care. And elective procedures are hugely popular. They're, you know, kind of part of the whole cosmetic surgery boom that's brought us all kinds of procedures over the years. Cosmetic dentistry really got its start in Depression-era Hollywood, of all places. You think about it, uh, the Hollywood smile was born there. And thanks to a dentist named Charles Pincus, who went to the movies back in the dark days of the Depression and looked up at the silver screen and saw these movie actors. And film was still a pretty young industry back then. And not all the actors had what we would consider perfect teeth nowadays. And Dr. Pincus thought there was a place for him in the movie industry. So he invented these Little appliances. They were called Hollywood veneers. They were like snap on teeth that you could put over your natural teeth. And many, many movie stars needed these and wanted these. In fact, one of his most famous patients was little Shirley Temple. You know, she was only six when she became a great star. And thanks to Dr. Pincus, we never saw her lose her baby teeth. So, anyway, that was the beginning. It, films really set a new standard for beauty and. How people wanted to look, and the cosmetic dental boom just kept on growing. In the 1980s, new kinds of veneers, different products were invented, and in the 90s, medical credit cards kind of took off, so people, you know, could finance these treatments in time for their weddings or, you know, some other important event in their life. Beauty pageant contestants and you know, aspiring. Public personalities see these as real important step on their way to fame and fortune. So, yeah, they're a big deal.
0: And just really in general for you know, a fairly significant part of the population, what is it that we spend on teeth whitening products every year? Yeah,
1: it's like a billion dollars just on you know tooth whitening products. And then, of course, a lot of these cosmetic smile makeovers and things cost thousands and thousands of dollars each. So, yeah.
0: Yeah, it's a big industry. We need to get back to the basics. And that's perhaps the knowledge, the the awareness of this history, what has gone on and where we need to put some energy in the effort to make dental care accessible, to make it more equitable for all of us to see that it needs to be there for every person, thus the society, to be able to just live life in a better and in a healthy way. Right, Mary?
1: Well, it is so important. I mean, just to be able to eat and speak and smile, I mean, those are such basic things. Yes. They really are.
0: Yes, that they are. And I feel that in this wonderful book, Teeth, filled with great stories, Really good history told in such a way that is really so captivating. Teeth, the story of beauty, inequality, and the struggle for oral health in America. Mary Otto, you have really given us an important insight, a great gift as to what our work needs to be.
1: Well, thank you so much. I'm so grateful to have a chance to talk with you about it.
0: It's been a wonderful experience for me, and I trust for those who really take advantage of not just hearing you speak, but pick up a copy of the book, which of course is available at all of our favorite book sources, right, Mary?
1: I hope so. <laughs> if not, ask for it, right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a the wonderful publisher is the new press in New York. If you have trouble finding it or want to learn more, You can look it up on www.thenewpress.com.
0: Great. Well, again, many, many thanks, and I appreciate who you are and the work you do, Mary Otto.
1: Well, I'm so grateful to be with you, Kate. Thank you.
0: And with that, we are at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Mary Otto and Sunday Morning Magazine with Robert Barnett. I'm Kate Daniels, your host, and I greatly appreciate your sharing this hour with me and these special guests. For details you might have missed or information you'd like to know, please just send me an email, kated at warm1069.com, and I will get right back to you. Also, if you'd like to listen again or share these important stories with your family and friends, find the podcast. It's on our Warm 1069 webpage just by clicking on the On Air tab and then looking for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of good health, focusing on the details of our life to have great health, have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9, the station to pick you up and make you feel good. Good morning.